invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, we're in verses 6 through 11. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be focusing upon the church. Uh, it is still within the context of Paul instructing a minister, and we see that and we know that. That is the context that has undergirded everything that we have talked about uh, throughout this book, really. Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul is instructing a minister. Timothy is at the church of Ephesus, and Timothy is seeking to guide that church and to guide the leaders, the elders uh, of that church in the way that they should go. And so we've seen any number of uh, of, of exhortations. It began in, in chapter 1 with warnings about um, the nature of this legalism, this legalistic uh, uh, method of ministry, these men who who taught the law but did not understand what they affirmed, what they were teaching and sought um, in a manner through their teaching. They were, they were confusing the church and Paul warned against that. And then Paul called the people in the church, the men to pray everywhere, uh, that they would pray for all men, for kings, uh, for, for all of those who are in authority, that we may lead those peaceable lives. Uh, he called for women to live in the assembly in submission uh, adorning themselves in modest apparel and shamefacedness. Then uh, that led into the expectations of the bishops and the deacons in the church, recognizing the qualifications of those who would be uh, uh, integral in the leadership of the body of Christ. Now we're in chapter 4. And of course, last week, Paul once again brought about this Warning. So the warning, as we saw in chapter one, was a warning against, if we can call it this, um, uh, the, the, the twisting, the perversion, the confusion of biblical theology, uh, the, the um, manner of confusion whereby you take biblical concepts and certain teachers throw them out of balance. And thus you major on the minors, you minor on the majors, you emphasize things that God has not emphasized and you lose grace within the process. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, it's very different, right? The, the, the warning in 1 Timothy 4 is those who would go out from the church, who would depart from the church, and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so this is a very different type. This is, this is those who are in the church, but they are seduced out of it. They are seduced into the world. And we saw the characteristics, the marks of that kind of, uh, uh, of the, the doctrines of demons or seducing spirits. Uh, they, they speak lies and hypocrisy, that their consciences are seared with a hot iron. Uh, they are hypocritical. They uh, bind other people to teaching that they do not bind themselves to. We see that um, emphasized in Second Peter chapter 2 in the warnings of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets, as it's called there. Uh, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, uh, convoluting the grace of God, convoluting the design of God, and all of these doctrines of demons, these seducing spirits, and the warnings against them. Now, as we continue in verses 6 through 11, we are reminded, Paul writing to ministers about their duty to keep the church pure from error. What we saw at the end of chapter 3, that the church is intended to be the pillar and the ground of truth. And so the ministers are again exhorted unto faithfulness and thus to call the church unto faithfulness as well. So we begin in verse 6 and the Bible says this, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast obtained. So remember, our direct context here is this warning against seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And we find here a manner of, of a conditional statement where Paul tells Timothy that being a good minister of Jesus Christ means calling the brethren to remembrance of these things, bringing about in remembrance these warnings, these warnings of apostasy, these warnings of seducing spirits, of doctrines of devils, even these warnings and uh, the identification of false doctrines, specifically here in this context, that the church needs to maintain a vigilance against encroachment of these things. Now, there's a difference between a vigilance and a paranoia, right? We're not called to be paranoid about every little thing, that every little mark of, of, of something that's unfamiliar 
We shun it. We disdain it. We uh, look at every single person that comes into the church with a skeptical eye, with a what are you going to do to my church type of eye. But we are vigilant in much the same way that we in our bodies formulate a lifestyle of, of care in order to remain healthy. A lot of times when you start getting sick, all of the symptoms aren't there. You just kind of know, right? There's a tickle in your throat or maybe your mind's not quite as sharp and you say there's something off. There's just something that's not quite right. Or um, you have a, a, just that subconscious recognition that, there's, that your body's not performing as the way it normally would. We formulate in our lives habits of safety and proper eating. We formulate in our lives regular and disciplined care to ensure that our bodies stay well. It's not necessarily that we're constantly overtly thinking about things, but we, are, we have formulated in our lives habits or routines of safety. I know when I'm too close to a ledge and it might be a little bit dangerous. And while I may not explicitly be thinking I need to stay 8 to 10 inches away from the side of that ledge, subconsciously I know that I'm not going to step too close to that ledge because I might fall off. Subconsciously I see things and I say, oh, I need to take account for the fact that there's a bit of that rug that's lifted up and I could trip on that. Or there's a cord there and I need to be sure I'm stepping over that cord. And we don't always... We're not always thinking about them, but, but we have formulated in our, in, our, our, in our body routines and habits of safety, routines and habits of self-preservation. And this is the idea that as a body of believers, we need to be formulating routines and habits of safety and self-preservation. We need to be formulating, a, it, it's not a paranoia, it's not a, a, a cloisteredness, we don't lock the doors and not let anyone in or... or Uh, refuse to ever change. But what we do do is we formulate within the body of Christ habits that bring about safety, that bring about health. Vigilance in the church regarding false doctrine, regarding seducing spirits, identifying what is right, what is wrong, trying the spirits, whether they be of God, so that when a foreign and unknown, a dangerous spirit seeks to find its way in, it is quickly identified and it is it is dealt with. It is removed from the body. Not necessarily a person, right? But the spirit. Lest we become complacent and error creeps into our midst. And you know, it is really easy for that to happen, isn't it? Because these spirits are spirits of seduction. One of the things we talked about not too long ago as it related to this idea of false prophets, as it relates to false teachers, as it relates to false doctrines. So we need to remember when Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing, he does so for a reason. They don't come announcing themselves as wolves. If they did, it would be easy. But they come looking like sheep. These doctrines come sounding good. If they didn't come sounding good, if I could, without fail, every time, open up to chapter and verse and simply say, well, that doctrine is right here, that's wrong. Well, then it would be easy. Now, those are encroaching in the church too, but it didn't start that way. It started with the stuff that sounded good, but was redefined, was twisted, was contorted to look like church or to look like Christian or to look like godliness, but denied the power thereof. And this is easy to happen. These doctrines, these seductions, they're meant to be appealing. They're meant to prey on human sensibilities. They're meant to be entirely reasonable from a certain point of view. But from that point of view, but whatever point of view they are, it's not a biblical point of view. It's not the Spirit. It is not the Spirit of God. It is not the power of the Spirit of God. It is not the character of the Spirit of God. And this is the point. This is why we must maintain the Word of God as our anchor. This is why we must keep sin out of our lives, keep sin out of the body so that we can maintain a tenderness to the Spirit of God, to His leading, to His direction, so that we can have that discernment necessary to understand the difference between the seducing spirits and the spirits that are of God. See, ideas change. People change. Perceptions change. Feelings certainly change. But God does not change. God's word does not change. And because of this wonderful truth, we as the church, we don't just float through this world trying our best to make it. We don't just drift along with the world. 
The church stands like a rock jutting out of the sea of confusion and delusion and deceit that is this world. The waves of error, the waves of perception, the waves of popular ideologies, they crash against the church, but it stands firm because its hope, its confidence, its anchor is not in how people perceive it. Our hope, our confidence, our anchor is not in how we're feeling that day or others are feeling about us. It is not in our reputation. It is in Christ. It is in God's word. It is in the spirit of God. It is not the stellar character of we as the church that cause us to be unmovable as if we're some sort of special humans. It is because we have a fixed point of reference. That is our sole authority, the sole authority upon which we base our expectations and our hopes. It is our priority. It is our everything. And this in reality is the point. The point of what Paul is exhorting to Timothy is that the church must know and remain loyal to the word of God, to the teachings of the word of God. And we know that this is the purpose of the church. We studied at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3, and we walked through all of the different words that the Bible uses for pastor and elder, and we ended up within that study at Ephesians chapter 4. And we were talking in Ephesians chapter 4 about the various actors of the church. If you recall, we read this in Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, excuse me, of the body of Christ. So we read these verses and we discussed the relationships between each of these and the churches of the New Testament. That the relationship that each one has to the church today. And we discussed how the apostles and prophets is that foundation upon which the church is built. And we, we found that as the definition of apostles and prophets that Paul had previously laid down from earlier in the book of Ephesians. And so we have the apostles and prophets that form the template, that form the guide, that form the foundation of the church, the teachings of the apostles and prophets found and rooted in the word of God. And then we have the evangelist and the evangelist, the teller of the good news, the one who is particularly gifted to go out and to win the lost to Christ and to bring them in. And then you have the pastor and teacher who is particularly gifted about the work of taking those who have been won to Christ and discipling them into maturity so that then the saints are matured. And they're matured so that then they may go out and do the work of the ministry And in doing the work of the ministry, the church is edified. The church is built up and it's made strong and it's made stable. Now, as Ephesians 4 continues, Paul also continues to describe just why this process is very important to the church. And again, we referenced this not too long ago, but we're going to be coming at it from a different angle. So stay with me here. In verses 13 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, why, when, how, what's going on with this idea that the church is being perfected for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body. Paul says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried with every about, excuse me, with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they, they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined and compacted, joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Paul says that we are to continue this process of building the local church, wherein the body is edifying itself, building itself up in love. And that with an eye of the day when, that, when the body of Christ will come into the full unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. What Paul describes here as a perfect man. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're all growing. We're all learning. We're all progressing. None of us has arrived. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a couple of weeks as we get to 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 and 2. But one of the real problems that the modern church has is that we, the culture of the church is to present ourselves as having arrived. 
We get ourselves cleaned up, we sanitize ourselves, we sterilize ourselves, we come to church and we have no problems for that hour. And we're happy and our families are well and our marriage is well and our lives are well and we have no sin and we have no problems. It's, it's as, as we described it a few weeks ago, it's kind of like church was the original Facebook. It was the way that you presented yourself that's absolutely unrealistic. Nowadays, you take a picture of you smiling and you put it on Facebook and then you go back to your misery, right? And everyone says, oh, everyone's life is so happy but mine. Why can't I have great lives like them? And what nobody realizes is that everyone is faking it. Everyone is faking it. It's all fake. And that's church for a lot of people. And that has been church for a long time. You get yourself cleaned up and you come and there's no problems and there's no issues and, and then you go home to your, your misery. And it's not supposed to be that. That's not church. We'll, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. That's not church. But that's what church is to a large number of people. We are a body. We are growing. We are progressing. You're imperfect. I'm imperfect. You have problems. I have problems. You have needs. I have needs. You are not where you need to be. I'm not where I need to be. But we all want to get there. And we all want to help. We all ought to be ready to help each other get there. We all ought to be a part, humbly, of helping each other get there. Again, we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But prepping for this idea, reminding ourselves of what the church is supposed to be, Paul is describing here this perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the day when we are conformed to the image of Christ as we sang a few moments ago, I shall know him and redeemed by his side I shall stand. That day when we are known, when we know as, as also we are known, that day when we will take our flight and say farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer, But until that day, there's work to be done in you and there's work to be done in me. Only then, only on that day, will we be the perfect man, the the finished and complete man, the the measure, the fullness of of Christ, growing up into him in all things. But, But we're not there yet, but we're growing into that. That's the purpose. That's why we're here. We strive for that. We work for that. We edify one another. Verse 14 tells us why. Why is this so important? Why is it that we're striving together, that we're working together, that we're growing together, so that we are not as children tossed to and fro? Notice he says that we henceforth be no more children, saying we were this once and we aren't this anymore. You become a part of a community of believers who are edifying one another and loving one another and helping one another grow so that you aren't any more like you once were, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. People are so easily deceived. Smart people, educated people, uneducated people. Deception is so easy. Because deception is not even just about what I know and what I don't know. People can easily be carried away in a spirit. The spirit of the age. Seducing spirits. Not seducing knowledge. Doctrines of demons, to be sure. But seducing spirits. What is it that could compel an entire nation to look the other way in Nazi Germany? What is it that could compel an entire nation nation to look the other way. That's not just each individual person's moral compass. That's a spirit. That's a spirit that is directing an entire group of people in a singular direction and a spirit that is holding back any, any dissent. It's not just about you being carried away by any particular single teaching or any particular ideology. But what about the spirit of the age? What about the way that the world is flowing? This is a whole nother thing. And we can see, you can, you can see that flow. Read the news. Uh, uh, See how 
celebrities talk, politicians talk, uh, and, and you can see a singular flow. Conservative, liberal, it doesn't matter. There's a flow that the entire culture goes in that's beyond just the individual facts of this or that. And those flows, what keeps us from just falling into the current? The church. The body of Christ. Not just you and your Bible. The body of Christ. That we be henceforth, not as children, tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You keep an anchor rooted, rooted in purpose, rooted in meaning, rooted in a singular goal that we are going to continue to be grown into the measure of the fullness of Christ. And in doing so, we grow up into Christ in all things. Each of us doing our part, each of us using our gifts, each of us serving in the way that we are able. And we increase the body unto the edifying of ourselves in love. Not just the body getting bigger, the body getting stronger. The body getting stronger. The body coming together, the body growing together, stronger together than we are apart. This is what we're here to do. This is why we meet. We don't just meet so we can fellowship. We don't just meet so you can sit and listen to a sermon and then go home. This is a part of a broader thing that is the church. That is us edifying one another, fellowshipping one with another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable, growing together, counseling one another, loving one another, investing in one another. This is what keeps us safe. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You can liken the church to a herd. Be sober, be vigilant, First Peter tells us. For your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Picking off stragglers comes very easy to a predator. But when the herd is together, there is a measure of protection. Now, there are new dangers as well, right? When, when, when there are people together, the herd may all decide to jump off a ravine together. And you're kind of stuck in the middle of that. Got to watch out for that. The close contact may mean that introduction of a false doctrine means it can spread like a virus because we're, we're close. But Paul's point is that the church, as the church operates properly, founded upon the scriptures, as it's described in 1 Timothy 3, becomes the pillar and the ground of truth, becomes a rock, becomes an anchor that keeps each of us stable. And so the good minister keeps the brethren in remembrance of these things. Dangers of false doctrines of seducing spirits. The good minister is a man, likewise, who is nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. That word nourished literally can mean to nourish, but, but it has the idea of education, being educated. The good minister is not an ignorant man. He understands the enemies. He understands friends. Ministers need to be educated. And by this, I don't mean formal education, whether that be Bible college or seminary, those things certainly have their place, but they aren't essential. The idea, much to the rather, is that good, a good minister needs to be aware. He needs to understand what good doctrine is. He needs to understand the faith that's once delivered to the saints, and he needs to be commended. He needs to be affirmed. He needs to have shown himself to have a stable foundational understanding and a, a proper relationship to that understanding. In other words, this is, these go back to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. The guy needs to be proven. They need to understand the nature of the enemy. They need to understand the courage, to have the courage to stand against error. They need to be willing to stand in the day of difficulty. A novice pastor is a danger to himself and to his church. And an ignorant pastor is also a danger to himself and to his church. A man who cannot defend the faith or articulate the faith or has no idea of what errors are floating around and his people are being introduced to, like a shepherd who has no idea where the predators are, where to, where to not lead the flock, 
It's not just about whether, whether the shepherd knows where the good grass is, but where's the good grass where there aren't predators. Both of those are important. There's no requirement in Scripture that a minister be an intellectual heavyweight. Indeed, when we look at the 12 apostles of our Lord, some of them were relatively simple men, to be sure. But this by no means excuses ministers to be lazy, ignorant, or uninformed. And a minister can't be informed of every error. I have people come up to me all the time and say, Pastor, have you ever heard of this one? And I say, wow, that's a new one. I wonder how long that one's been around. Because there's new things popping up every day. Can't be informed of everything. But to be so well informed regarding truth that in the relationship of truth to the common errors of which the Bible warns particularly, that the minister is able to help his flock remain pure and protected, to bring his flock into remembrance of the errors that float around and how they should relate themselves to them. And when a minister does this, Paul says, if you put your bre- the brethren in remembrance of these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. A faithful minister of Jesus Christ because he has been nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. And notice this last bit, as we mentioned already, not only has he been nourished in them, he's been educated, but he's attained to them. He has attained to them. He's followed after them. He not only knows them, but he's living them. Spiritual discipline, prayer and study, spirituality. So Paul continues in verses 7 and 8. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. In contrast to being nourished in faith and good doctrine, is the temptation of ministers to entertain that which is silly, that which is useless, or that which is distracting. And this is why the minister of God needs to be affirmed, particularly among Young men, there is a a tremendous temptation to, especially once you start getting educated in the Word of God, to follow after those things, because now you can dig, to follow after the things which really don't need digging. To dig into the things that really don't need digging. Paul calls them here profane and old wives' fables. Things that may be interesting, not necessarily sinful or wrong, but have no root or foundation in actual sound doctrine. I get these from time to time. Someone will come up to me and they'll ask me a question about uh, uh, something, some deep particular scripture. And I'll say, well, you know, I, I haven't really thought about that and I don't really want to because it just doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, these are nuances and you may be right or you may be wrong, but it doesn't matter to anything. That's not where we need to be putting our time and our effort. Things which are interesting, things... Uh, which maybe are created by tradition or by philosophy, things which are rooted in perception or feeling, connecting dots which the Bible doesn't connect, emphasizing things that the Bible really doesn't emphasize. We've talked about this already from Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he called on Timothy not to give heed to fables and to endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying. And as we've said any number of times, but it bears repeating, It's easy to fall into that stuff because everyone loves that stuff. It's fun to be able to kind of dig, jump down a rabbit hole and dig through all that and connect dots and dates and people and numbers and whatever and, 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 uh, you know, signs and wonders and dates and and blood moons and, and, and feast days and yearly cycles and all of those things, interpreting doctrine through the lens of psychology or uh, interpreting Bible history through the lens of mythology or uh, whatever it might be, spending our time and energy on things that the Bible doesn't speak to. And the reason why these things are so appealing, as I've said any number of times, is because they feed intellectual curiosity rather than spiritual edification. And while we would all agree that spiritual edification is more important than intellectual curiosity, we often don't live like that, do we? I don't know that I, if I talk to every single person in this room today, I don't know that I'd find anyone. If I said, is intellectual curiosity more important than spiritual edification? I don't know that I'd find anyone who would say, yes, intellectual curiosity is more important than spiritual edification. But if we were to gauge the amount of time that we put into intellectual curiosity versus spiritual edification, if we were to go onto Amazon and look at the number of books related to the Bible 
that deal with intellectual curiosity rather than spiritual edification, we might find that though we say this, we don't always live it very well. Spiritual edification, see, is significantly more difficult to pursue than intellectual curiosity. Because intellectual curiosity can be, even as it relates to the Bible, can be fully satisfied without ever stepping outside of my flesh. I can learn all of those dates and numbers and connect all those dots without having one ounce of the Spirit of God working in and through me. Satisfying intellectual curiosity will never demand of me humility, obedience, submission. It's an exercise of the mind, not really an exercise of the spirit. And so I can come in and I can go out of my carnality or my rebellion or my... uh, 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 I can come in and go out of intellectual curiosity without any of that carnality, rebellion, uh, disobedience, any of that being touched. Without, without ever feeling any of those rough spots. Now, as I say this, I by no means want to imply that intellectual curiosity is wrong. It just needs, it, it has its proper place. The danger is not even in enjoying intellectual stimulation or curiosity, entertaining those things. The problem is when it becomes the focus. And particularly when a minister decides that that's where he wants to focus his ministry. And so Paul exhorts Timothy here to refuse profane and old wives' fables and instead to exercise himself unto godliness, unto spirituality. Rather than staying in the broad and shallow, uh, shallow pool, as it were, of knowledge. Just dive deep into the holy. Dive deep into the spiritual. Refuse the profane. And this exhortation is for each of us. You only have so much time in your day. Be vigilant that you do not get so distracted by the things which have little profit, the broad, shallow pool of knowledge that you don't or fail to dive into that deep well of holiness, that deep well of sanctification, that deep well of obedience and submission. Paul then paints a contrast between the exercise of the spirit and the exercise of the body. He says that bodily exercise has very little profit, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Now, Paul is not telling us that we don't need to be healthy, that we don't need to exercise. That's not the point of this, right? Remember the historical context within which this is written. Today, there are two primary functions for exercise. One function for exercise are those that exercise to stay healthy. You do the movement that you need to do in order to to keep the fat off, in order to keep the the, um, cholesterol levels down, in order to keep the stress levels down, in order to keep the blood flowing, all of those things, right? And then there are those who, that's not why they exercise. They exercise to craft their bodies, to hone their bodies into some measure of performance, right? Whether that be an athlete, who is honing his body for physical performance or whether that be a, you know, a model who's honing their body to be looked at. Regardless, there, there's exercise to craft the body and then there's exercise to keep the body. When Paul said bodily exercise profiteth little, there weren't likely all that many people in that day that had Fitbits on their wrist and were just trying to get in their, their steps for the day, right? They walked everywhere. There weren't a whole lot of office jobs around. So we're, they, they, they couldn't just stop by McDonald's and, and eat a bunch of fries and, and get a 64-ounce pop. So we're not necessarily talking here. Paul is not at all talking about the idea of keeping yourself healthy. What Paul is talking about is he's contrasting the deliberate exercise of the spirit, crafting and honing your spirit to be a a spiritual athlete, to be um, capable and ready to 
function at the top of your spiritual game and the athlete in the physical, the one who is crafting and honing his body to be able to perform admirably at his craft. That's the contrast here. Athletes invest tremendous amount of time and energy into crafting their physical bodies. They sacrifice and they strain to get their results. And not even just for the rest of their lives, but only perhaps for a few short years before their body starts to break down. And then they're relegated to the history books as the world moves on to the next athlete who's younger and stronger. But godliness, Paul says, godliness is very different. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Crafting and honing your body into a particular task, it it profits only for a short time, and it profits only to the degree that, that it's, it works, right? Only to the degree that your body is actually able to perform. But godliness, every moment that you spend into godliness, every moment that you spend honing, crafting, exercising the spiritual, every moment that you spend becoming better in Christ, growing into the measure and stature of Christ, Not only does it benefit you now, but it follows you into eternity. And that's the idea here. It will profit you in this life and in the life that is to come. Thus, it is far more worthy of our time. Verses 9 through 11. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Paul says these words are faithful. They're worthy of complete loyalty. They're worthy of our complete commitment. He says that it is for these things that the minister of God labors. It is for these things that the minister of God suffers reproach. It is for these things that the minister of God says, I might be castigated, I might be cast out, I might end up not... I, I, am, I am yielding the benefits of this life. I am yielding the, the uh, um, uh, physical advantages of this life. And I'm doing these things because, we tr- because I trust in the living God that bodily exercise profits little, but, but exercise in the Spirit is profitable unto all things. This is what the minister ought to see. This is the mindset that the minister ought to have. That godliness is profitable and that's why he has devoted himself to it. So worthy are these things, these godly things of our time and our effort and our loyalty that the minister labors and suffers reproach because he believes the words of the scripture. He trusts in the living God who Paul says is the savior of all men and especially of those that believe. What does that mean? We talk about being saved and generally understand that to be the moment of our salvation. Often we call that being born again. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Savior of all men, but especially those that believe? And this goes back to the essence of the gospel message as we understand it. That when Jesus died, he did not just die for the sins of some. That Jesus' death on the cross was not just effective for a select few or an elect few. But that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. That Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world on the cross that Jesus purchased the forgiveness of sins for the entire world so that we read with abundant clarity in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, that word meaning to appease the wrath or to atone. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world, the wrath of God against the sins of the world has been appeased by Christ. And this is an important concept to understand about salvation. The work of Jesus Christ has appeased the wrath of God for the sins of every man. To this end, there is only one sin that stands between any man and God. God has transferred all authority over to the Son. The Father has transferred all authority under the Son. Jesus Christ admitted this himself. The idea there is like a creditor. And you owe that creditor an amount of money you could never pay. And then that creditor's son comes and says, 
you owe my father more money than you could possibly pay. But I can pay that. And so he pays the debt for every single person to be right with the father, to to not have anything between him and the father anymore. And that debt is effectively transferred to the son. And the son says, now I hold the conditions by which that debt is relieved. See, the father, he expected every single penny. He demanded every single penny be paid. In full, every holiness. And no man could do that. But the son in the name of his father, says, now that I have satisfied every single penny that my father wants, I hold the key. And the key is found in John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so Jesus Christ says, I will forgive your debt and you'll be right with me and the Father if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Those that don't believe are condemned. Those that believe are not condemned. That is the hinge upon which this turns. It is not my personal sins. They were paid for on the cross. It is whether or not I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that determines whether or not I am saved. So when the Bible says here that he is the savior of all men, especially those that believe, this is in consistency to what we understand doctrinally, that Jesus Christ has purchased the salvation of sin for every man, but it is only applied, it is only realized in the lives of those who meet Christ's conditions. And that being to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ for himself, to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ for himself, to submit himself before the truth that I am a sinner. And that because I'm a sinner, I am hopelessly separated from God. My sin has separated me from God. And there's nothing I could do about it. I can't earn my way to God. I can't work my way to God. I can't buy my way to God. I can never be deserving of God because I'm already separated. I'm already guilty. I already owe the debt. And I can't even pay off the interest on that debt, much less the debt itself. So the father did something because he loved us so much. He sent his son to pay the debt for us. And his son lived a perfect life, never once being separated from the father, never once being displeasing to his father, never once coming outside of that relationship with the father. But then he gave his life. He was made sin for us. He paid the punishment. He bore our, uh, the wrath of God against our sin in himself. He paid that debt because we can't. And then he was buried and he rose again the third day affirming that everything he said he could do, he could do. And what did he say he could do? He said that he could give eternal life. He said that he could break the chains of sin. He said he could make us a new creation, a new creature, that old things could be passed away, that all things could become new. He said that he could give us fullness of joy and life more abundantly. And any man, any woman, every child who recognizes the promises of God in Christ and who receives it for himself, who sets aside, the word is to repent, repents of his dead works, who sets aside anything and everything that he might be trusting in to get himself to heaven, who sets aside his own effort, who sets aside his own capabilities, who sets aside anything and everything that he might be able to do or someone might be able to do for him outside of Christ to get himself to heaven and he throws himself at the mercy of Jesus Christ alone, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it means to believe. Belief is not just knowing something in your mind. Belief is not just head knowledge. Belief is not just saying, yeah, Jesus did do that. Yeah, the devils believe and tremble, James says. Many will say unto me in that day, Christ said, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name do many wonderful works? And he will say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There are any number of people who know the things of God. There are any number of birds nesting in the trees of the kingdom, as Jesus put it in his parable, who lay, animals that lay in the shadow of the tree of the kingdom. But they've never actually believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. They have never exercised faith unto salvation. And if that's you today, if the Spirit of God is saying, that's you, that's you, that's me, you've never done that, would you make today the day where you lay aside those things that you're trusting in, whatever merit, whatever confusion, whatever it's been, and you put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be for you what you cannot be for yourself so that you can not just know that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but that you can specially know that you're under the blood of Jesus Christ because you have believed. And so this is what the minister does. He labors and he suffers reproach because he trusts in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially the church. Three points of application as we close today. Point number one. Remember that depth of godliness is infinitely more profitable than breadth of knowledge or height of physical achievement. The scriptures are are full of exhortations to see investment in the life to come as far more worthy of our time and effort than investment in the life, in in the things of this life. Of course, this does not imply that we are called to neglect the things of this life, to neglect our physical health, to neglect the responsibilities that have been given to us, fulfilling the earthly responsibilities that we have. There is no conflict between fulfilling the earthly responsibilities that God has given to us to care for our body. There is no conflict between fulfilling the earthly responsibilities that God has given to us to care for those that are our responsibility to care for. There's no conflict between that and investing in the, th- in the things of the world to come. But the problem is when we yield spiritual benefit, when we yield spiritual exercise for the sake of earthly things. We consider this distinction for a few moments. In the next chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's going to begin by exhorting the church to treat each other as a family. And then it's going to roll over into teaching about widows and when it is that it's appropriate for the church to care for a widow called a widow indeed. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 8, Paul writes this, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, faith and is worse than an infidel. Paul says here that the church should not be responsible for taking care of widows if that widow has family who can take care of her. And that it is incumbent upon the family of that widow to be the first line of care. And if they don't, if they fail, if they don't provide for those of their own house, if the family of this widow is neglecting her so that the church has to step in, they are, in their neglect, denying the faith. And they're worse than an infidel, that word meaning an unfaithful person. So we see this recognition here that Paul says, if you don't care for, in this case, it could be a mother, it could be a, an aunt, or an, uh, 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 whatever the relationship might be, if you don't care for that widow as a family member, particularly one who would be in the church, you are not exercising yourself unto godliness. This is not the only charge where where we see that there's no conflict between the physical responsibilities that we have in this life and spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians 7 calls upon husbands and wives to act and willingly fulfill each other's physical needs and to not deny the spouse what is their right by the other. Ephesians and Colossians command servants to be faithful to their masters in the Lord, and not just the good servants, but also the froward. These same two epistles exhort children to obey their parents in the Lord. All of these are physical relationships, but they carry with it spiritual obligation. There is no contradiction between me being a spiritual person and me exercising myself in these physical relationships and and me working out these physical responsibilities in my life. Romans and 1 Peter command citizens to honor the civil authorities that are over them. There's no conflict between being a spiritual person and honoring our authorities. 
As a matter of fact, quite the opposite, right? And all of this culminates in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. See, the Bible is not calling us to ignore or disdain earthly responsibilities. The idea is kind of posited from time to time that a person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. The idea is not that I go live in a monastery and I neglect my family and I neglect everything in this life. I ignore my parents. I ignore my children. I ignore everything uh, so that I can devote myself into the deeper knowledge of God. Much to the contrary. Fulfilling the duties and obligations of those who live in this world is something that is fully compatible with spirituality and godliness. So much so that, in reality, the course of godliness will inevitably run through our earthly obligations and priorities. But this idea, the idea of living in the world, fulfilling earthly obligations which rest upon us, is very different than flowing with the current of the world. Than flowing with the spirit of the age. Than allowing the things of the material world to overcome my love for the spiritual or my priority upon the spiritual. This is the difference between understanding that I live in the world so that I express my godliness and my spirituality in material and temporal ways in my life and yielding the priority of growing spiritually in order to enjoy the things that this world has to offer for me. And this is what Jesus warns against in Matthew 6, 19-21. This is our memory work for the month. Why don't we say it together? Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." These are such important words. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, for me to obey my parents, to honor widows that are widows indeed, for me to meet the obligations that I have toward my wife, for me to honor and love and nourish my children, none of these things are resting my treasure in this life. I am doing these things out of the extension of my obedience to the Lord. I'm laying up treasure in heaven as I'm fulfilling those earthly responsibilities. But when I lay my treasure on this earth, when I place my, my priorities, my love, my affections, my heart on the things that this world has to offer for me, that's the danger. And this is the essence of Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 4. Anything that would turn your heart away from the exercise of godliness is something not just that you don't need in your lives, but something that you don't want in your life. You need to actively remove it from your life. It is competing with the most precious thing. It is competing with the most important thing. Every day of our lives, the decisions we're making are either compelled by the Spirit of God within us, by godliness, or they're compelled by our flesh, the sin nature. And these decisions matter in the manner that Paul expresses it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, that the things of the Spirit have promise in this life, love, joy, peace, integrity, those things, and promise in the life to come because it's an investment in eternity. And so it is that we are called unto that depth of godliness This life is so full of distractions, so full of things which simply do not profit, not only outside the church, but inside the church as well. As believers, we can become so distracted, and we already talked about the ways in which we can become distracted. There's far more profit in devoting our thoughts to godliness than there is in seeking physical achievement. There's far more profit in devoting ourselves to the Spirit and spirituality than there is simply scanning the breadth of Christian knowledge. And if we can truly position our minds this way, to set our affections on things above, to truly believe that the message is worthy of all acceptation, that godliness is profitable unto all things, it will change our lives, it will change our church, because it will change our decisions. 
before we act or speak, what we choose to do with our time, what we choose to do with, with, with our, our energy, our emotional capital, will all conform to one standard. Is it profitable unto godliness? Point number two. Depth of godliness is only found through spiritual exercise and spiritual nourishment. What we speak of today is not just a decision. Like with bodily exercise, if, I've, if I just decide I'm going to get healthy, I've decided I'm going to lose 10 pounds. Well, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow, step on the scale, and 10 pounds are going to be gone because I've decided, right? The decision must be backed by action, discipline, direction. A person does not become spiritual by accident. There is nobody who has ever become spiritual by accident. Becoming spiritual, spirituality, godliness, this is something that must be nourished within you. It must be exercised into you. It takes discipline. It takes effort. It takes focus. It takes consistency. And it takes a vision to see with eyes of faith the promises of the world that is to come and to lay aside the weights that so easily beset us so that we can run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the legacy of Hebrews chapter 11. I just gave you a little bit of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. The life of godliness is walked upon the road of faith, which persuades us that whatever the cost in this life, it is not worthy to be compared with the glory of that which will be revealed in us as we finish our course with patience. And it's not only in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we see this. It's not only in 1 Timothy 4 that Paul likens spirituality to athletics. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest, by any, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. There's any number of different athletes out there. They're all trying to obtain a corruptible crown. They want to lift the trophy at the end of the season. They want to wear the medal around their neck. And there's coming a day when they'll be relegated to the history books and they'll be put into a casket and they'll be put into the earth and they will go the way of all flesh. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But what if Legacy Baptist Church could be spiritual Olympians? What if we could strive for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? What if we could lay aside all those weights that beset humanity, beset modern Christendom, and we could simply run this race with patience. And we could exercise our, body, our, our, our spirits and craft them into a spiritual edge to obtain an incorruptible crown that has profit not just in this life, but in the life to come. That would take effort, discipline, purpose, full persuasion of the promises of the life to come, a determination to win the prize, but it's profitable. Do we believe that this morning? Is that how we're living our lives? Or have the things of this life, the things of, of, of the world around us successfully convinced us that they're worth our time more than the things of the Spirit of God? Is your heart rooted in the things of this world or the things of the world that is to come? Final point. 
depth of godliness is, in, is the intended result of our gathering. One of the primary elements of God's design for our gatherings is to exhort one another in this regard. We come together to fellowship, but the fellowship is not aimless. We come together to learn the Word of God, but the learning of the Word of God is not aimless. We're not here to check something off of our, off of our list. We're not here just to be around people that think the way we think. We are here to grow together. We are here to become better. We are here to exhort one another. We are here to keep each other on the path. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read that our fellowship is to edify the body, to speak the truth in love, to anchor each other in truth, and to love the truth. Such would also be the case in another passage which exhorts believers unto assembly. In Hebrews chapter 10, on the basis of our confidence that one day we will stand before Christ, we're exhorted unto three particular things. Verse 22, we are exhorted to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23, we are exhorted to hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. And in verses 24 and 25, we're exhorted, number three, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Provoking one another to good works. When I look at my children, I say, don't provoke your sibling. What my children are attempting to do when they're provoking their sibling is they are attempting to, they are inspiring a reaction, right? They are, they are, exerting themselves into a certain avenue of actions in order to inspire a reaction. And they know the unique and particular actions within the scope of their, whichever sibling it is they're targeting, in order to elicit the reaction they're looking for. I do this with my wife sometimes. I'll say something and I'll have that look in my eye because I know what that, react, what, what, that, what that statement is going to do and how my wife is going to react. I'm provoking her unto an action. Now, we think of provoking and we think of something negative, but it's not a negative word, is it? It, it can be negative. You can provoke a person unto wrath or unto frustration, and that's negative. But what if I provoked you unto godliness? What if I came up to you with a particular set of actions and words that compelled you to be better, that compelled you to love God more? What if you came up to me with a particular set of actions and thoughts because you know me, so you, you have crafted an approach to me that's going to provoke me to obedience? You have crafted an approach to me you know, we talk about people that have that big red button. You push that button and poof, and it's kind of fun to watch them, you know, react. What if you could find each person in this room, what if you could find their spiritual big red button? You press it, and they overflow with the Lord. You press it, and it reminds them of what they're doing here and, and, and of what this is about and of what, what we need to be striving unto. And they're having a bad day, and you provoke them unto good works. You provoke them unto love. This isn't guilting them. This isn't, well, I see that you're, you've got too many things on your plate to serve the Lord today. No, it's, let's go. Let's serve the Lord. Let's love one another. Hey, I noticed that, that interaction between you and a brother. What's going on there? Is there something I can do to help you? Do you remember what the Bible says? Remember. Remember patience. Remember love. Remember long-suffering. What if we did that? What if we got to know each other well enough where we could do that? Where you knew where each person stood and how it is you can help them and how it is you could harm them. That's a vulnerable place, Pastor. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. That's a vulnerable place. But that's where growth happens. So we've got to assemble so that we can provoke. We've got to assemble so that we can exhort. 
not just assembling, not just fellowshipping generally, but actively, purposefully coming together to grow one another. Is that us today? Paul writes to Timothy of the marks of a good minister. A good minister exhorts unto godliness, lives out this godliness before the face of his people. And because this is the purpose of the church assembly, to edify, to exhort, to provoke into love and good works, to serve together, to pray together, to grow together into spiritual maturity, that's what we ought to be doing. How are you doing today? Have you become distracted? Have you become disinterested? Have you become apathetic? Are you working at godliness, growing, pursuing, maturing? Are you working it out in you? Are you seeking to work it out in others, in this body? If I can accomplish this on the authority of God's word, I will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. If we can accomplish this, we will be a profitable church. And may God help us to do that this morning. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.